this is Constancy Juma, and you're listening to Ghost Town Palava, a podcast about Cameroon's Anglophone crisis, its impact on those living in the conflict zones, and what's being done to not only support the victims, but to also address the underlying causes of the problem. In this episode, I'll talk about the inspiration for the podcast, shed some light on the ongoing conflict taking place in Cameroon, and provide some historical context for its origins. When civil unrest began in late 2016, I, like many Cameroonians in the diaspora, was at a loss. I didn't understand what was happening or why. I couldn't make sense of all the conversations taking place on social media, much less the videos depicting scenes of chaos, violence, and torture that were freely circulating the web. Worse still, we started getting reports of innocent people losing their lives, caught in the crossfires of confrontations between the military and separatist factions throughout the northwest and southwest regions of Cameroon. Though I hadn't lived in Cameroon since my childhood, I found these events upsetting, and I was soon overcome by a feeling of helplessness. What could I, as an individual, do about a problem that was so big? As someone who has spent most of her life consuming and telling stories, who has worked as an actress on television, film, and theater, who has collaborated with artists of various backgrounds and disciplines, I felt inspired to share the stories of the victims of this crisis. In 2019, I mounted a one-woman show to raise awareness about the situation in Cameroon. I decided to call the show Ghost Town because I was fascinated by the observance of this practice, where a community would halt normal activities for a day as a form of peaceful protest. No business. No school. No nothing. At first, it appeared to be a civil society effort whereby communities rallied around the idea of hitting the government where it would hurt the most, its pocketbook. If crippling the economy in the Anglophone region was successful enough to get the government's attention, then the demands of the Anglophone citizens would have to be taken seriously. There were dedicated days when Ghost Town was observed, and there may have been some flexibility in how rigidly people with certain types of employment would observe the practice. It didn't take long for the ghost town practice to be co-opted by a group of separatists known as the Amba Boys, who took to enforcing it and doling out punishment for those who failed to observe it. There are many stories of teachers who became targets once they were known to hold classes on ghost town days. One can easily be puzzled by the separatists' determination to suppress education, weakening the intellectual development of its supposed future generation and lining up its own defeat. Then again, targeting education isn't a foreign concept, given the existence of Boko Haram and its mission to abolish westernization and, by extension, Western education, which it views as the cause for widespread corruption in neighboring Nigeria. The other reason why the concept of ghost town intrigued me is that I saw the irony in the label, given that there were many communities that became real ghost towns, where populations were forced to abandon their homes when the fighting intensified, and either ended up as internally displaced people or becoming refugees in Nigeria and other countries. 
According to a 2020 UNHCR report, almost 700,000 Cameroonians have been internally displaced as a result of this crisis. My one-woman show had a decent run at the Hollywood Fringe Festival, but I was painfully aware that much more work needed to be done. I needed to find a way to have participants in this crisis, particularly the victims, share their stories themselves. I wanted to hear from the peace workers, community leaders, activists, and other allies who were doing their best to support these victims. On October 24, 2020, when a group of armed men walked into a school in Kumba and massacred seven children, I knew it was time to embark on the next phase of my own activism. Among the many known and unknown conflicts quietly raging across the African continent, Cameroon's Anglophone crisis has had a devastating impact on the people living in the northwest and southwest regions of the country. This podcast will focus on their experiences. But before we proceed, allow me to set the stage and provide context for the world you're about to walk into. So, where do we begin? I find it easiest to start the story from the middle and then work my way backwards. Like any story about socio-political conflict, this one is convoluted and echoes far into Cameroon's colonial past. But before we embark on that long journey, let's make a quick stop at a more recent incident. The year is 2016. October 6, in fact. We're in Central Africa, in a country called Cameroon. The town is Bwea, which happens to be the capital of the southwest region of the country. On this particular Thursday, the tension in the air is palpable. If you happen to be in a courtroom today, you may notice that no cases are being tried. Lawyers have initiated a sit-down strike, a coordinated effort taking place across several towns in the region. What's their goal, you wonder? To get the government's attention and make a case for protecting the common law system of governance and education, which had been inherited from the British. You see, this region of Cameroon was a UN trust territory governed by England, unlike a majority of the country which had been governed by France and followed the French civil law system. I'll touch on the difference between trusteeship and colonization in a later episode, but it's my opinion that the imperialist motivations were the same, irrespective of semantic accuracy. So technically, Cameroon was never colonized by England and France, but in reality, it was. Now, officially, Cameroon is bilingual, with French and English as its administrative languages. But French is spoken by 70% of the country's population, and most business is conducted in French. This state of affairs had been taken for granted to such an extent that the government made a gaffe which triggered the wrath of many English speakers in the legal and educational sectors. French-speaking judges and teachers were being assigned to English-speaking regions. To add insult to injury, many of these civil servants didn't speak a word of English. Anglophone lawyers and teachers, having had enough, stage a peaceful protest. The government reacts by deploying the military to contain the situation, which quickly escalates to violence. In the following weeks and months, arrests are made, normal life is disrupted, and lives are lost. 
Footage of people being tortured begin to circulate on social media. The government's heavy-handed response is to shut down the internet, not just cutting people off from social media platforms, but completely disconnecting them from the world. Human rights organizations take notice, and Cameroonians in the diaspora apply pressure in the international community, appealing to organizations like the UN and the United States Congress. But how did we get here? How did we get to the point where English-speaking Cameroonians had to fight for the right to protect the English language? Wait, that's not fair. That was an oversimplification of the problem, but bear with me. Because if you think this is a simple disagreement over which colonial language deserves to be spoken in a largely unknown Central African country, it's way more complicated than that. The Cliff Notes version is that Cameroon has had a long history of Western influence. It acquired its name from Portuguese explorers who in the 15th century landed on its shores and dubbed it Rio de Camarao, which translates to Shrimp River. While trade and missionary activity were the norm in ensuing centuries, the country was first officially colonized by Germany in 1884. After Germany lost World War I, however, England and France took over, splitting Cameroon in two for the next 40 years. During the course of that time, both colonizers imposed their culture, language, and legal as well as educational systems on those they colonized. By the 1960s, African countries were seeking independence, so France withdrew from the region it governed, which became the Republic of Cameroon. The Brits, on the other hand, determined that their share of the country was too small to be an independent entity. So they offered its inhabitants a choice. To join with Nigeria, which also spoke English and observed the common law system, or join with the newly independent French Cameroon, with whom they shared a heritage. They opted to join French Cameroon, and thus the Cameroons simply became Cameroon. There was a tacit agreement that English Cameroon would have a certain degree of autonomy, enjoying special status as a federal state. And so in 1961, the country was renamed the Federal Republic of Cameroon in acknowledgement of this. In 1972, it was renamed the United Republic of Cameroon by its first president, Amadou Aijo. It was finally reverted back to the Republic of Cameroon in 1984 by Paul Bia, the country's second president, who incidentally is still in power almost 40 years later. While changing the country's name was supposed to highlight the unification of French and English regions, in reality, it effectively revoked Anglophone Cameroon's status as a federal state. All power was now rerouted to the central government, which was being managed in Yaoundé, the country's capital. I imagine now you're beginning to get an idea of how colonial meddling might have caused French and English-speaking Cameroonians to be at odds. It's not unusual to hear Anglophones complain about being marginalized, not having the same access to opportunities and advancement as their Francophone counterparts. Many observe that most of the country's natural resources are in the Anglophone regions, yet said regions don't benefit as profits are siphoned off to the economic and political capitals of the country. But enough history for now. 
Let's come back to the 21st century and continue the narrative of the inciting incident which led to the current crisis. The Northwest and Southwest provinces are in a state of upheaval. In the town of Buea, tensions are high and the military presence has become conspicuous. Their primary job is to maintain order and ensure that agitators are held accountable. Everyone is on high alert. As weeks turn into months and the idea of peace talks is much discussed, very little dialogue of significance occurs. When it became obvious that the heavy-handed approach would do nothing to quell the discontent, the government started making small concessions, creating a national commission for bilingualism and multiculturalism, recruiting bilingual magistrates and teachers, and turning the internet back on. But by then, it was too late. Groups of disenfranchised Anglophone youth took to arms. Initially, it seemed as though their intent was to fight on behalf of the Anglophone people. Before long, however, it became evident that they were being funded by militant Cameroonians in the diaspora, whose objective was to split the country apart so that Anglophone Cameroon would declare independence as an entirely new country known as the Federal Republic of Ambazonia. It was also clear that they were prepared to accomplish this goal by any means necessary, and were prepared to shed blood. Separatist fighters, most of them young men, took to policing the Anglophone regions, enforcing ghost towns, kidnapping for ransom, engaging in torture, and killing innocent citizens. While the Federalists, those who want to remain unified but autonomous, practiced non-violent protest, the Separatists were decidedly violent. The Anglophone population's discontent with the Separatists is obvious. Rather than focusing exclusively on the Cameroonian government, perceived by all as the true oppressor, the Separatists are attacking innocent people in the Anglophone regions. The military and Separatist fighters have been playing a game of cat and mouse, engaging in fatal skirmishes. Meanwhile, the citizens of the Anglophone provinces are caught in the middle, experiencing atrocities from both sides. It's important to stress that as of now, this conflict isn't a civil war between Francophone and Anglophone citizens. In reality, the grievance is against a Francophone government which, by all appearances, has gone out of its way to ignore the needs and demands of its Anglophone citizenry for the past 60 years. The schism within the Anglophone community itself between Federalists and Separatists has added a layer of complication which many argue makes peace talks elusive. So there you have it. I won't claim to have provided you with a complete history of the genesis of the Anglophone crisis, but this brief overview should help you make some sense of the situation. Ghost Town Palava is a labor of love. And my objective in launching this podcast is to raise awareness about what's going on in Cameroon. Each episode will delve into the stories of those directly involved or impacted by the crisis and how they're coping with their circumstances. Though some accounts may sound unbelievable, all stories are true. This series would not have been possible without my co-producer and collaborator, Nkanyangkwai, who did the thankless work of interviewing the subjects you will meet in some of the following episodes. 
I'd also like to thank those who were courageous and generous enough to share their stories with us, as it wasn't easy to relive the traumatic events they experienced. Finally, I'd like to thank you, the listener, for your willingness to hear these stories. Follow Ghost Town Palava on Instagram for information on how you can help spread awareness, promote peace, and support those impacted by the Anglophone crisis. If you find this content valuable, subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Until next time, I wish you peace. <laughs>